You're listening to TIP. And that always has stuck with me because ultimately it has much less to do with how much stuff you get done and much more to do with choosing the right things to do and doing them well, especially as your organization grows. And so I think that if you run into the problem or you run into the challenge of I don't have enough time to do this, in my view, you're not too busy to do it. You're just prioritizing wrong. On today's episode, I'm joined by Ryan Vaughn. Ryan is an executive coach and the founder of Inside Out Leadership, a leadership development agency supporting founders to rapidly scale themselves as leaders so they can thrive professionally and personally as their companies change the world. Ryan was a founder and CEO for 15 years and has deep training in mindfulness, psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, psychedelic integration, and more. During our fascinating conversation, Ryan and I explore what it was like building his marketing company from the ground up, when he knew it was time to step away from his business, how Ryan views purpose and how it should be used in living a meaningful life, why he's a big believer in meditation, what his daily morning routine looks like, what it really means to be an effective leader, and much more. Ryan is so knowledgeable on a wide range of subjects, so it was great having the opportunity to chat with him. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Ryan Vaughn. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Ryan Vaughn. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Clay. It's good to be here. Now, Ryan, it's been fun connecting with you and reading up on some of your work lately. I'd like to learn more about your story to help us understand why you do what you do today after being an entrepreneur for a number of years. Could you talk about your story of how you went from being a serial founder, building a marketing platform to now being a coach, helping entrepreneurs realize their full potential? Yeah, no problem. So I have been in the startup world, in the, the entrepreneurial world for pretty much my whole life. My first business was a uh, incredibly profitable business selling pogs in second grade on the playground. And that was a, an awesome business because my parents, my mom would buy the pogs for me and then I'd go sell them and then I'd gamble them back and I was pretty good. So a lot of times I wouldn't even have to part with the goods and I'd still end up making money. So I got a sense of like what was possible through business really early. And I went through, I guess, traditional schooling and then just out of college was really interested in getting into sports. So I'd played sports my whole life, everything with a ball. And it's really, really hard to get a job in sports as a guy just coming out of college, like incredibly hard. And so I failed a bunch of times in trying to get into sports and eventually decided, all right, well, I'm just going to have to start my own thing in sports because I really want to watch sports and call it work. That was my initial goal. And so I started a sports blog about the Detroit Lions and Detroit Pistons because I'm a huge Detroit sports fan and realized really quickly nobody cared at all about what <laughs> what I had to say about the Lions and the Pistons. So that lasted a few, like maybe six months and then that got shut down. But then I found that there was a market opportunity in high school sports. And so you know there wasn't the type of coverage and recognition for high school athletes as there was for college and pro. And so I started a blog, which kind of became a large blog with about 10 people working with it at one point covering high school sports. And it was called uh, West Michigan All-Star. And then that went for a period of time and eventually evolved into... VNN, we rolled the first business into the second one. You know, I was at VNN for 10 years. At one point, it was called Varsity News Network. And then we got sued by a big private equity company for using the word varsity. So we changed it to just VNN. And we built that company as ESPN.com for high schools. It was a tech platform that basically was the entire back office for high school athletic departments. And that was my business school. That was my, all of my, you know, sort of learning around the entrepreneurial process and journey. It really kicked into high gear and, and most of it happened in that uh, period of time through VNN. So, you know, early on, I went in probably about two years or so. I was, we went through an accelerator and after the accelerator, I was not spending any money. And so I lived on PB&J for a couple of years and then eventually 
maybe two years in, closed our first angel round. At that point, it was just, I mean, we started to kick things into high gear. I was like one of the more public CEOs in the tech space in Michigan. And it was a pretty fun time because as Michigan was sort of finding its footing in the startup world, I was like at the forefront of that. And I was one of the businesses that just started earlier than uh, and other people. So I got to ride that wave up. You know, won the biggest business plan competition at the time in the world, raised money from a whole bunch of angels, got into the VC world, raised money from them, and was just kind of like every year would ratchet the growth up a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And eventually we got to the point where we were the largest high school sports communication platform in the country and had a bunch of success. So that was like, that's the outside story. On the inside, there was a lot of tension through that process. And I think a lot of the tension stemmed from the fact that like what made me successful and effective at raising money and recruiting employees and rallying people to my cause was that I really looked like I knew what I was doing. And I really looked like, you know, I was up and to the right. I was humble bragging on LinkedIn and all this stuff. And I really looked the part. And that was, it was effective. It's an important part of building an organization is you have to lead, you have to bring people along with you. But the challenge of it was, is that inside I felt like completely uncertain about all the stuff that I was doing. And to some degree, like ambiguity is part of the startup journey, but that was really, really hard for me. And going into work all the time, acting as if I had everything under control when really I was just scared. I was like, how am I going to hit payroll this time? And what happens if this customer bails on us or whatever the problem du jour was? And I think for most of my career as a CEO at VNN, who I was for the public was a really different sort of experience from who I was for myself. And that tension was really draining for me between those two things. And, you know, it was draining, it was isolating, it was, it just took a toll. And what I did as a means of sort of working with that is I found myself sort of numbing myself. Like I would feel scared and I would, you know, I'd feel scared about runway or anything else. And I would tell myself, well, I don't have time for that. I got work too. And so I would kind of shove down that emotion, pocket it for later, and then just continue to bust my hump. And that just has ripple effects. Like as I sort of ignored fear and ignored sadness and these other things, I just kind of became just more distant from the rest of life. Uh, and so I got really, really laser focused on my organization, didn't have time for family, didn't have time for friends, didn't have time for hobbies, didn't have time for anything. And I got pretty much like the company was the whole thing for me. And, you know, that was my life. Yeah. So it worked and we grew consistently. But I think that tension was what really sort of started the process for me of like, I wonder if this is actually what, you know, what I should be doing. The first thing that comes to my mind is early on, how are you able to pay the bills and pay rent and make sure you know, you're know you able to pay for even your day-to-day living expenses or even pay some of the employees you had running these blogs and marketing companies early on. Is that one of the bigger struggles you had or is there any other struggles outside of that fear that you had on there? Building a business, in, at least a media business in the early 2000s was a struggle. It was just a challenge. Advertising was a business model that was changing a lot. You know, we were sort of catching the tail end of that. And so throughout the process of building VNN until we sort of we got a little bit smarter around how we were monetizing, a lot of it was a struggle. And so we were the type of business and the type of organization that was built on growth. There's a lot of economies of scale that went along with it. And so while some of the early businesses, which were just a you know media play, like it did struggle to monetize for sure. I think you hit on it. But we believed, and I think was proven out over time, that with enough scale, other monetization opportunities would open up. And so that's why we got on the VC bandwagon and started to push pretty heavy on that as well. So you were running this marketing company, VNN, and you were putting so much of your time and energy into the business. Was there a moment you knew that you really needed to take a step away from that and do something different? Or how did that all pan out? There was a variety of moments. And I think there was probably... I would look at those as like different opportunities I had to step off the treadmill. And it's just a matter of was I ready for it at the time? I think the first time was when we closed our Series B. And I remember just feeling like we just got this money in. It was the culmination of an awful lot of work and hustle and everything else to get to that point. The documents alone are months. So just so much work kind of like all packaged into a cool, we did it, you know, sort of a, a sense. And I remember the feeling after that just being like, ugh, we just did all this and I just made all these promises. But ultimately, I remember feeling like I have been chasing kind of gold stars my entire life. 
And when I make all these commitments to people to go raise money on a Series B to then go achieve more gold stars, and I remember just feeling like even if we hit this next milestone or if we don't, it's not really going to make me happy. It's not going to make a material difference to me. It's just execution. And I think that was an opportunity for me to reevaluate stuff. And that was also a time when I wasn't ready for it. And so, you know, at the time I have a hundred odd employees and all sorts of reasons not to actually wrestle with this angst, this existential pressure that I feel. And so I just kept going and kept hitting milestones, kept growing the organization and just kind of ignored the voice in the back of my head that was wondering like, is this really what you want? So that was, I think the first one. And I lived in that space, you know, executing and ignoring the feelings that I was having for a couple of years. And I probably would have gone even farther, honestly, if it weren't for some outside intervention, which I was fortunate in hindsight, I feel like I was fortunate that someone sort of forced the issue. So I went into a board meeting and I put together a, an acquisition plan for a roll-up of these seven other companies. And I was like, all right, we're going to do this. This is how it's all going to work. And it's going to be amazing. And the board was like, this is a great plan. We also want to find somebody who's done this before to be the CEO. And oh, the ego blow that comes with that. And now, I mean, I see that transition enough to know that it's pretty common, but I certainly didn't think it was going to happen to me. And it was hard, but you know, I feel like I had a job to do. So I saddled up and I went through the recruiting process, brought on a really, really talented CEO to replace me. And I think even at that point, I was like, oh, I can be the chief strategy officer, chief operations officer, whatever. But there was this one moment to your question. There's this one moment where we had been working together, me and the new CEO had been working together for a few months and things were going reasonably well. And we got to a board meeting and it was the meeting where we had to sign the paperwork, where I was going to sign over my title and everything else. And I signed the paperwork and it was like, I got punched in the gut. And all of a sudden at that moment, it was clear that who I was had been the CEO of VNN. And I couldn't be that anymore. And it was that that moment that it was all of the stuff that I've been holding back for so long sort of, you know, raced at me and I had to reconcile with it. And so that was the beginning of sort of my, a lot of growth work, a lot of inner work to integrate all of these other pieces of myself that I've been holding at bay for so long. So for me, that was stepping away for, you know, a sabbatical, which is a fantastic thing that I think not enough people get a chance to do. I was fortunate that I could. And that eventually led to me leaving the company and launching a coaching organization. As you transition from being an entrepreneur at a startup to exiting, it's like your identity mm -hmm. of who you are entirely changes. Like you were just saying, how can others going through something similar grapple with that and help find their almost new purpose and mission in life? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think my personal experience and then also from a macro sense and working with a lot of founders is that early on, I think that the way that we orient to purpose is pretty different from how we do with some experience. You think about it like, you know, you come into the world, you graduate school or you start your company or you're in that phase where you're going from I am being trained to now I'm going to go perform. A lot of the experience of that is like looking at a menu of different options of lives that you could lead. And you may be like, I'm a doctor, or I'm going to be a founder or whatever it is I'm going to be, right? And when you evaluate option A, option B, option C, each one of those options comes with a life and comes with sort of purpose that's attached to it, comes with all of these questions kind of already answered a little bit, even if it's fuzzy. And so for a founder, when you're stepping into your first role, a lot of it is like, well, I got to build something massive. I got to make something of myself. I'm going to leave a dent in the universe, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's certainly what drove me for much of my early career. And what I've learned happens in working with people, I've seen this pattern over and over again, is that eventually you get that thing, you know, assuming you have some success, you get a little lucky and so forth. And eventually you have success and you solve the problem you set out to solve, which is that I'm not yet successful. And then you're still alive and you got 50 years left to go. And you're like, now what? And that spot of like, I thought I knew what life was about. And I went out to go accomplish that and I did it. And now clearly there's got to be something else because I don't feel like I can keep just chasing my tail around this. That's a really disorienting place. And I actually work with a few founders that are navigating this place. And purpose becomes a really big thing for them. So I think purpose is a really versatile word and a versatile concept. I think in Western society, we tend to think of purpose as a, a future-oriented concept. 
like a, a time sometime distant in the future where we're going to build this big thing and it's going to be successful for whatever reasons matter to us. And in order to achieve this purpose, we need to subordinate ourselves today and organize everything that we do today, make sacrifices today so that we can invest in achieving this big purpose someday in the future. And you know, it's a very motivating way of working. It's actually hardwired into our brains evolutionarily to value or to sort of feel discontent more than we feel content. That's part of the reasons why we as a species are so successful. But it's also, it means fundamentally that there's no such thing as enough. As long as the purpose is somewhere in the future, there's no way of ever achieving it because you just move the goalposts. And we as founders get really good at moving the goalposts. And you're like, oh, this thing, I'll be happy when I get this. And then you get it. You're like, cool. Now, actually, I'll be happy when I get this next thing. So when a founder has or when anybody, I work with founders, that's what I think about. But when anybody has gone through that process and has sort of exhausted the pursuit which happens at a particular point. The way that I think about it is that purpose can shift from being future-focused to present-focused. And it's kind of a fundamental rewiring of how to use purpose in your life. And instead of anchoring on this big thing that you want to build someday in the future or you're building toward, you think about purpose as a, a type of a life you want to live, a type of a human that you want to be today, right now. And then you build towards making that your life as best as you can. So for me, around that time, and this is evolving, so it's continued to evolve today. But at that time, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to live a life being useful to people as much as I could, being in deep conversations with people as much as I could. And writing because I felt like that was a passion of mine and I wanted to spend time in it. And so when I determined the kind of life I wanted to live in the present, then the question was, okay, so how do I build toward a life where that's all I'm doing, where I'm effectively steering my day-to-day efforts toward that lifestyle where I can live in the present moment as much as is meaningful to me. And I don't think either of those are right. Like I may end up anchoring purpose in the future again as well, but right now having a present focus purpose feels really right to me. Uh, and it allows me to, you know, do good work for its own sake, not to try to get somewhere, but just because I'm here, I'm a monkey on a spinning rock in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And I have the opportunity to do something creative today. And that's really how I think about it. When I talk to founders, the process is just really one of being clear on what you want, future or present. And then once you're clear on that, then everything can sort of fall into place, you know, to design toward that end. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Yeah, you mentioned how you're working more on what feels like more of a creative endeavor. You know, you have a lot more flexibility in that type of work. And I think the struggle for an entrepreneur is, like you mentioned, you receive funding for your company. I would think Mm -hmm. that many entrepreneurs, they have this revenue target or gross profit target, whatever they need to hit for their business. So it's almost like they might want to go down one path, but they're always driven by this target that, you know, drifts them away from what they really want to do. So I think that's a really big challenge for entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, I think particularly in the venture world, when you raise venture capital, like you're on a ride and getting off that ride is really, really hard because in order to make any sort of progress, you're making commitments to all sorts of different people. And so the more commitments that you're making, you sort of like weave yourself a track that dictates your next period of time. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think like if you're up to something, if you're up to building something that's meaningful, that makes difference, however you define making a difference, that happens through making commitments to people. You're playing pretty small if you're not making commitments to people. I think that's a pretty important part of the creative process is, is making those commitments, but it does limit your flexibility. And so, you know, what I find is that there are for myself, and then I also see this in, in other founders as well, there are these natural breakpoints which don't happen that often. So it's important to look at them and to take advantage of them when they do, but they do happen. You know, you are between businesses, you sell a business, you hit profitability. There are these times where it's like, I have an option now to change and nothing says that you have to, but I think that we set the course for our lives when we're pretty young and we don't know a lot. And, you know, as we continue to evolve as human beings, I find it really, really useful to examine our lives and our experiences in those moments to make an educated choice around where we want to go. And that's a hard thing to do when you're full speed ahead on your company. And so that's why I mentioned sabbaticals earlier. I think that like intentionally doing nothing for a period of time is just so profoundly useful to people. Even if it's like, I'm going to take a week off and I'm going to sit in my house and I'm not going to do anything for that week. For me, it was like two months that I took off. And I think that's a really, a really meaningful amount of time as well. Because what happens there is, you know, we're all running so fast. We're all chasing whatever it is that we're interested in attaining. And what happens when you stop is all of the reasons that you were running start to tell you to keep running again. And you get to see like, turns out like I am terrified of being left behind by my peers. And I am scared of not mattering. All these different things that drive us, we get to see when we stop because it's the stuff that starts playing in our head. And you get to see like, these are the things that are motivating me. These are the things that are causing me to make the decisions that I'm making. And if you stop for any period of time, like it's hard to avoid those things. They just show up. So it's not like you have to do any work. But the opportunity there is when you see the things that are driving you, you get to evaluate like, do I really want to live a life that is the response of feeling fear that I'm not going to be good enough? Is that really what I want to dictate this one wild and precious life that I get? And for me, it wasn't. You know, that wasn't a a reason that I found worthwhile enough. And stopping for that period of time enabled me to see that and choose more consciously. What was your definition of success when you started your company in 2010? And how Mm -hmm. has that changed over time? And what's your definition of success today? I think this plays into the purpose question, right? I think when I first jumped into the startup world, success for me was like building a unicorn business and and making money. And I was on that track for a period of time. Honestly, the business that we built could still get there. I'm not day-to-day involved with the organization anymore, but I think I was on that path until I couldn't convince myself anymore that you know, if I get money from a unicorn sale, that that's actually going to make me happy. And there was a point where, you know, somewhere in that messy process of moving on, where I couldn't convince myself of that anymore. I couldn't convince myself that the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is really a real pot of gold. And so, you know, again, now, like, as I think about success for myself, it's really present focus. And after spending so long, especially in the work world, so much of my energy spent on being the perfect CEO or being a great CEO, whatever I thought that meant, which, you know, when you hear that, what I hear is being the person that I thought other people wanted me to be, because that's how I was going to be a good CEO. It was like, you know, what would Steve Jobs do? I'm going to do that. What would so-and-so, right? And doing that for a number of years, eventually it got to the point where it was really hard to figure out who I was amidst all of the different roles I was trying to play. And so for me, success today is really anchored around being myself 
just full out. And so the way that I organize this now is you know, I've put a, a decent amount of work into like a really functionally useful present tense definition of success so that I can use it anytime. And so for me, it's three words. It's soften, which I can feel in myself like I can actually do it. I can soften my belly. I can sort of like let my any tension in my body kind of relax. You can give it a shot too if you want to. The second word is open. And so this is a, a process of opening to the moment to whatever it is that life is asking of me right now. And sometimes that's bust my hump in building an accelerator right now. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's go take a walk outside in the sunshine. 75 degrees right now. Like I plan to do that today. And then the third word is full self-expression. And that's really, as I think about like a life well-lived for myself, it's less about accolades. It's less about leaving a dent in the universe. It's more about, I believe, there's a story that only I can tell because of my unique life circumstances and experiences and personality. I just want to make sure I tell it. So that's really how I think about success today is in learning what's on the inside of myself and then doing my best to express that in the world. I really like that. In your writings, you've touched a bit about mental health and trying to take care mm-hmm. of yourself while you're trying to accomplish all of these amazing feats. What have you found over the years to be most helpful in supporting your mental health? I think that's a really good question and a valuable one. And I know that I'm grateful that that's becoming a bit more a part of the zeitgeist now. And I think there's probably 101 answers or there are probably 101 answers to that question. And and generally speaking, I could find a case to support most of them. What I actually, I think for me, what resonates more than mental health is mental growth and that's a pretty fundamental shift for me. And so when I work with clients and how I think about it for myself, my own, you know, self-care, if you a lot of it's organized around mental growth. And if you study any of the, you know, the last hundred years of developmental psychology, what you find is that there is a process that human beings go through as their consciousness evolves, as their mind evolves. And whether you're taking sort of, you know, Bob Keegan out of Harvard has a adult development theory, spiral dynamics is another one, Ken Wilber has integral theory. Well, any of these processes, what they say is that human beings, their inner state evolves in a predictable way over time. And it evolves based on moving progressively more from the world of subject to the world of object. So if you think about it, like when you're born, everything, the minute an infant is born, everything is all one thing. There's no distinctions between anything. It's all just, you know, something is, is all they really can do, right? And then pretty soon they get a sense of mom is different than me. So now I can see there's an object out there and now I can interact with that object. And as a human evolves, they start to develop a sense of like, oh, there's a spoon. That's an object that I can do something with. And oh, there's a soccer ball or whatever. And more and more, like the world becomes more and more full of objects that I can interact with. And that mostly is the childhood development process. For adults, the development process Function similarly, meaning that you're moving things from the world of subject to the world of object, but it's moving bits of your personality from the world of subject to the world of object. And this is ultimately when I think about the work that I do and the practices that are important, it's all around facilitating that process, helping somebody move from what Keegan would call the uh, socially authored mind where you get your sense of identity from the roles that you play and the groups that you're a part of. That's mostly where maybe young adults are. It's like, I'm a Democrat. I am a Christian. I am a, you know, finance person or whatever. These are all these like external groups that I'm internalizing and making part of myself, part of my subject. And, you know, the first step in that development process is moving from the socially authored mind, which I just described to the self-authored mind, which is when you start to see that actually I'm not a Democrat. That's just like, a thing that exists separately from me that I mistook for myself. And now that I see it separately, I can decide which parts that I like, which parts that I don't like, and I can work with it more consciously. So an involved process, that's probably the shortest crash course in terms of adult development. But when I think about how a human being can orient to helping their mind you know, work at its best, it's all about facilitating that process. So I have found for myself and then working with 100 plus founders through various stages of this process that, you know, you can kind of pick and choose the model that you want. You can use leadership development, you can use adult development, you can use ego development, you can even use spiritual development. Actually, spiritual development is probably the one that has worked the best for the most people because it's been around for thousands of years, but it's all this adult development process, moving things from subject to object and realizing that you are not that. So when I think about the things that work to help people to do that process well, it's things like meditation, 
Meditation is a really useful tool, not just to help you be calm, although some people use it for that, but ultimately to learn first and foremost, that you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts exist separately from you. They are object and therefore you can work with them differently. There's a, a practice that I use and I work with founders a lot on called morning pages, which is a, a journaling process that you do every morning. You write three pages about whatever. And you can even write three pages that just says, I don't know what to write about for three pages if you want to. The key is you got to fill the three pages. And in doing that, that again, creates space for the processing to happen where you can process all the different things that, uh, you know, that you're doing as you're, you're building your organization. A couple more practices that I think are super useful. One I think of as like having a learning focus. So instead of just being like, I'm going to go build a business, it's like, well, in order to be a good leader, I need to learn to delegate as an example. And then being really intentional about that's what I'm learning right now. I'm going to do a deep dive into delegation, become good at that, and then move to the next thing. So there's uh, probably a handful of other ones that I could riff off of. But ultimately, I think the reframe and the frame that I think is so useful is to think about self-care as mental growth every bit as much as mental health. Ray Dalio, whose book is sitting right behind me, like you pointed out, He's been pretty vocal about meditation and how transformative and crucial it has been for him over the years. I mean, yeah. I believe he's done meditation for decades, like most of his life. Could you talk more about the meditation practice you do and how that has maybe evolved over the years? You mentioned Ray Dalio. I think he's a good example. He's been vocal about it, but it's way more than just him. I think other vocal people are, you know, Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. He's kind of crass about it. He uses curse words when he talks about how awesome meditation is. Jack Dorsey. I mean, there's, if you think about like the leaders in the tech world and then the business world, I bet you yeah, it's got to be 75% plus are pretty devout meditators. So for me, I started 12 years ago or so. And at the time I was messing around with some of the apps with Calm and Headspace and these types of things. As a, And ultimately it was like, I am constantly anxious. How do I solve that? That was how I thought about meditation. And I think that some meditation can do that. Like some meditation is just designed to help you get calm, but ultimately meditation is a form of exercise. And so depending on the type of meditation that you do, you're exercising different muscles. And, you know, while there's some types of meditation, which are good for focusing, uh, there's a variety that can help you to focus really well. And that's a useful skill to have. There's a variety that can help you to sort of develop equanimity, like sort of calm under pressure, you know, by sensing into your feelings and sort of letting them experiencing them as opposed to resisting them. And then there's a type of meditation that's geared around learning how your mind works so you can work with it differently. And ultimately, as my practice has evolved, I've found one type of meditation that I think is just incredibly useful for leaders. And this meditation is called Shikantaza. It's a type of really stripped down Japanese Zen. And it's so, so simple and so challenging, but it's simple enough that I can give you all the instructions on how to do Shikantaza right here on this podcast. The instructions are sit down and most of the time they have you have your eyes open and just kind of stare a little bit in front of you, but you sit down and you hold everything still, everything that you can possibly hold still, hold still, and then watch what moves. And that's the instructions for Shikantaza. And what you find really quickly is that there's a lot of stuff that I can't stop moving. It's just going to move. I don't have any control over it. And at that moment, you start to realize how you react to all of those things that are moving. Like my thoughts are moving and well, wait, I thought I was supposed to be Zen and not thinking about anything when I'm meditating. And then you realize not only do I not control my thoughts, but now I'm having a reaction to those thoughts, which is like, you should be meditating, which I also don't control. That reaction just happened without my control. And now I'm thinking I'm reacting and now I shouldn't be doing that. So now I'm going to react again over and over and over. You get a sense of like, just how much of everything that exists in our head happens independently of us. And that starts to A, you know, develop a distance so that you're not identified so strongly with everything that you think and you can sort of develop that equanimity. But it also gives you the ability to see patterns in the way that you think. And that really is just such a useful tool for leaders, for investors, anybody that's making important decisions, understanding the thought patterns that underlie those decisions and making conscious decisions about which ones work for you well and which ones don't work for you. I can't think of anything that's more important for somebody that's a professional decision maker. And like you talk about Dalio, that's a perfect example. Like the principles that he's put out and the big model that he developed, a 
lot of that has to do with, you know, let's think consciously about how we made these decisions and then make conscious choices about whether we should make those decisions the same way. Again, Chicken Tiles is a fantastic tool. It's hard, it's challenging, and it takes some coaching, but it's a very, very useful tool to train your mind to think the way that you want it to think, as opposed to just the way that it generally works out of the box. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. 75% of founders are devout meditators. That's an incredible stat. It seems like meditation is one of the most underrated and underappreciated practices and routines available. And I'll be honest, I've been on and off with meditation throughout the years myself. Related to meditation and mental health, a lot of these practices are done in the mornings. So I'm curious if you stick to a specific morning routine and if so, what that might look like. Yeah, I do meditation. I do journaling. I do exercise, self-reflection, and I have a learning goal. And I sort of have another couple of practices, but on a daily basis, I think about it that way. But one of the big challenges that people have when they're implementing practices like this is I don't have enough time, right? That's always the, the challenge. I, probably every founder I work with is like, yeah, right. I can dedicate a half hour or an hour in the morning to just taking care of myself and helping myself approach the day correctly. No way. I don't have time for that. And there's this really interesting story that I find myself telling a lot. There was a, an interviewer that was interviewing the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama is, I mean, he meditates for like five hours a day, something crazy. Even to me is like, that's quite something. But the interviewer asked him, like, well, you're running a country, you know, the whole country of Tibet. Plus you're doing all this peace work or all across the world. You're doing all these things. How on earth do you find time to spend five hours meditating? And the Dalai Lama was like, you know what? You're right. Actually, I didn't realize all the stuff that I'm doing. I'm doing so much. I better meditate six hours. And that always has stuck with me because ultimately it has much less to do with how much stuff you get done and much more to do with choosing the right things to do and doing them well, especially as your organization grows. And so I think that if you run into the problem or you run into the challenge of, I don't have enough time to do this, in my view, you're not too busy to do it. You're just prioritizing wrong. And if you were to look at it consciously and really reckon with the fact that 
you're not going to get everything done that you want to get done and start to make some tough choices about what's actually the smartest thing to spend your time on today. Practices are the point of highest leverage. It's the way that you sharpen your thought every day. So it's not a thing that I think can be skimmed on. That is a very profound insight. Just that idea of sharpening your mind and taking that time to really think about what are the most important things you should be working on, especially for entrepreneurs whose time is extremely valuable and it's critical that their limited amount of time during the day is spent well. Transitioning to chat more about working with entrepreneurs, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see other entrepreneurs making that need to be addressed? You've lived in many of these people's shoes and probably are able to spot some of the same red flags that you've been through. So I'm curious if you see any recurring themes in who you work with. Yeah, there's a lot. Honestly, there's a, the process of building a, an organization is so personally challenging that people end up going through a lot of challenges that are knowable. I think for founders and leaders, there is one moment that everybody learns at some point when they realize that all of the dysfunction that they're seeing in their company is actually their personality being mirrored back to them. And that is just such a jarring thing for most people because, you know, this comes back to this like adult development process of moving things from subject to object. Most leaders, when they first start, they look at their organization as a thing that they should be managing. And, you know, to manage an organization, you put values on the wall, you develop a really good purpose, and you put all this scaffolding in place to help your organization grow. And so many leaders, I think, think they're doing the right things. They check all the right boxes relative to company operating system, values and OKRs and whatever. And then it just doesn't work. And their company doesn't do what they think they ought to be doing. Instead of you know executing flawlessly on their plan, they're always late to meetings and everybody's missing deadlines. You know Nobody's communicating well, everybody's mad, whatever the symptoms are. And that can be so frustrating. I think it probably is for damn near everybody that goes through it. And it's not until you start to look at your own, as a leader, your own personality and your own behaviors as a model for the rest of your organization to follow that things start to open up. And there's just been so many examples for myself as a, it's easier to talk about me than my clients because my clients are all confidential. But in my own case, we scaled our organization from 15 to 75 people in like nine months and everybody hated each other afterwards. And I couldn't figure out why in the hell everybody hated each other. It seemed like everything was going well. But as I started to work with my coach around my own stuff, what I realized is that when there were challenges, my process was I would say, all right, don't care about the challenges. I got work to do. So even if I'm mad about it or upset, I would shove the emotion down and get back to it. I've talked about that earlier. And coach says something like, okay, so you know, how does that remind you of your organization? And as I started to look at my organization through that lens, I started to see so many of my employees who when somebody wouldn't do, you know, they'd mess up somehow. Another employee, what they would do is they would say, well, this person messed up, but I don't have time for that. I'm just going to do the job and then forget it. We have work to do. We got to keep moving. But then they would hold on to that resentment of the other person. and just wouldn't talk about it because that's what I did. And you have all these employees getting stuff done and resenting the heck out of other people for all the littlest things that they're not talking about. And pretty soon it just led to this crazy blow up. And I was so frustrated about it. I remember at the time being like, why is everybody so mad all the time? It's crazy. And when I finally realized like, oh, that's because they're just doing what I do, that enabled me to work consciously on how I dealt with problems and talking about not only, you know, well, there's a problem, I got to go, but really like, okay, what is this? How is it impacting people? And how can we help everybody feel complete about this? That's what ultimately helped our organization to stop resenting internally the way that they did. So for any leader, I think there's this weird aha moment where you realize that your biggest point of leverage for managing your organization is the way that you show up as a human and not various tools like OKRs or values or anything else. And I think that's a, an eye-opening process that everybody goes through and is something definitely to look for. Like you mentioned, being a good leader is obviously something that's very important in building an organization. How can entrepreneurs and business leaders develop their leadership skills outside of simply just hiring a coach? Before we talked about these four parallel worlds of adult development, ego development, leadership development, and spiritual development, all of those are give or take the same process. They you know, emphasize different parts and they use way different language. But the process of developing as a leader is developing as a human, a more complete human that can see more of themselves as object can work with more of themselves and lead better. And so, you know, there's lots of different ways of skinning that cat. You can dive in in any one of those individual ways. But 
whatever you choose. I think the other thing that I think a lot of people get wrong as it relates to the approach is it's easy to approach leadership development as like a thing to figure out. It's like, I got to figure out how to be a leader and I got to find the answer of whatever that is. And that's not how human development works. It's not a cognitive thing. It's not a, I'm going to learn some sort of bit of information that's going to change everything for me. That's not how it works. It's practice. It's, you know, determining what you want to develop a skill in or develop a competency in, and then practicing it over and over and over and over again. And tools like meditation and journaling and, you know, declaring a learning focus and things like this can all be useful. Therapy can be useful on the journey. But ultimately, I think it needs to be approached as a process of constant practice and then choosing your practices based on you know the type of result that you'd like to see. Yeah, I think that's just a huge part of it. What does an effective leader look like to you? I'm really curious about this because this you know concept of leadership almost fascinates me. It's almost like this abstract sort of idea of being a quality leader. And you mentioned Jim Collins, his book, Good to Great, and in one of your writings, and you talk about what it takes to be a level five leader. So I'm curious, what are some things or some qualities that screams like, yes, this person's an effective leader and is capable of leading a great organization? To me also, that's squishy and that I think it depends on who you're asking, what makes a good leader. Jim Collins has a fantastic model. I really liked his and sort of paraphrased using my words, the level five leadership. Level four leadership is a conscious leader, somebody who sees their personality and their stuff as object and they can work with it so that if they're not getting the results that they want by being bullheaded and kind of like creating reality distortion fields, they can change. That's the key distinction that a level four leader would allow you to do. And that's what all the mental growth that I described does. But level five in Jim Collins's world is a, it adds something that's, I think, pretty important. It adds what I think of as a transcendent purpose, like a clarity around this is what my life is about. And I believe in this so strongly that I'm willing to subordinate my own needs and my own interests to achieve this thing, to cause this thing to be, to exist. And that's a pretty small group of people who not only have the consciousness and the capacity to change themselves to suit the results that they want, but also are lit up by something to that degree. And I think in Jim Collins's work, he describes a lot of people have to have some sort of a brush with mortality to finally anchor on something that's like, I get a sense of I'm going to die. Hard stop. It's going to happen. And I will not be able to get everything done. Matter of fact, I'll get less than 1% of everything done. And so within that context, what is the one thing that I want this all to be about? And for the people that have that, the people that are clear on this is what I'm working for, and it comes from that deep place of understanding that this is it, that I think makes a really, really compelling leader. So that Jim Collins's model, I think, is there's a lot to be said for that. For myself, the way that I think about leadership is rather than, you know, for a long time, I was trying to be a, what I called a successful and certain leader, somebody who had his shit together, knew where he was going, had all the answers and could tell you all the stuff. And that I got to the end of that and I realized it was lacking. It can get you a certain amount, but you know, it, it doesn't go any farther than that. And so for me today, the way I orient towards leadership is this unique combination of vulnerable and committed. I think those are that nexus of those two words just really sums it up in like a chef's kiss sort of way for me. Vulnerable in that you're willing to own what you know, what you don't know, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, all this stuff is like all on the table and fair game. Because by you being vulnerable in that way, you give the people you're leading the opportunity to do that as well. And that's ultimately what engages people's hearts and gets them to want to, you know, like jump through walls uh, proverbially for you. So vulnerable to give your people the ability to be vulnerable too, but then also committed, meaning I don't know what I'm doing. I'm nervous about it. I'm excited about it. I have all these jumbles of emotions, but regardless of all of that, I'm moving forward because this matters that much. And I think to embody both the realness of the vulnerability with the steadfast commitment of, yeah, this is uncertain. We're doing it anyway, because it matters. I think is a really, really compelling place to come from for people. So that's my definition. And you know, I think it really depends on the person, how they want to orient towards what makes them a successful leader. It's funny you mentioned the idea of having to grapple with your own mortality. I recently interviewed Eric Balchunas, who wrote a book called The Bogle Effect. It was all about John Bogle and building his company Vanguard. Vanguard today has over $7 trillion in assets under management. And John Bogle, I believe it was at in his early 30s, he had a heart attack and he was diagnosed with this really rare heart condition. And I asked Eric, like, why was Bogle able to build this company that no other 
company was able to build. And it was just this crazy incentive structure where all the profits are just just go all straight to the investors and they just lower their fees. And you know, they really have a completely different objective than all the other companies. I asked Eric, you know, how was he able to do this? And he was like, I think he grappled with that idea of like eventually he's gonna pass away and he has this rare heart condition. He doesn't know when he will pass. And you know, he really just had a purpose driven life. And oftentimes with successful people, I'm always curious if there's one or two books that are must reads for listeners, you know, I, I interviewed Eric to talk about his book. Are there any books that have had just a profound impact on you? Yeah. It's funny, as you were describing your conversation with Eric and Vanguard, there was a book that was popping in my head around like, oh, there's this world of like reckoning with I'm going to die. And so therefore, what? There's a recent book that I read that I really loved called 4,000 Weeks. And it's uh, the subtitles Time Management for Mortals. And it really sort of deconstructs all of popular time management stuff, which is all around like how to get more stuff done. And it basically starts with the stance that, you know, all of our efforts of trying to get more stuff done are just a failure to reckon with the fact that we never will get everything done. And the sooner that you can just settle with, yep, I'm not going to do most things then you can start to do the hard work of choosing the things that you really want to do. So I think that's a a really, really profoundly good book. I think for me, the books that have made the biggest impact on me are probably mostly in the world of spiritual development. I've really, really liked some of Ram Dass's stuff. I really, really liked Jiddu Krishnamurti has a lot of really good things as well. And this is, again, is like the spiritual development side of adult development. Yeah, there's a variety in that world. I think in the business world, I wrote a post a while ago called Books That Changed My Business. And um, there are a few, that I think about it, that I included in there. So one was David Brooks' The Second Mountain. David Brooks is a New York Times columnist, but a lot of it has to do with this process of going from The Achieving Mountain, which is your first chapter of life, to what's next. The Meaning Revolution by Fred Kaufman is another really good example of that. And then Reboot by Jerry Colonna. Uh, it's a great one. That was a it's kind of right book at the right time for me uh, and, and was part of what led me to coaching. But I think the one that I'm most excited to talk about is this book called The Artist's Way. And I take the stance that entrepreneurs are artists that work at scale. And so being able to channel creativity and hone it and nurture it is a really important capacity for leaders. Uh, and The Artist's Way is the, the best tool set that I've found to cause that for people. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing Ryan, I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Before I let you go and we close out the episode, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give a handoff to the audience to where they can get connected with you, how they can reach out if they'd like to. All of my stuff is on my website, uh, leadinsideout.io. The organization is called Inside Out Leadership. So the website is leadinsideout.io. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at Ryan H. Vaughn. And if you want to stay in touch, I'm not currently accepting new clients. We're all booked. But a great thing to do is subscribe to the newsletter that I publish once every other week. And a lot of it just has to do with this conversation around how to evolve as a human being and as a leader and as a professional built for VCs, built for entrepreneurs and and kind of everywhere in between. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.